0: Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Mother Daughter Team, Dr. Gloria, and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation, with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio.
1: I'm Dr. Heidi with my mom, Dr. Gloria, and we're talking about facing grief and loss after suicide. And our second guest is Bob Gebbia. Bob Gebbia is the Executive Director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the leading national not-for-profit organization exclusively dedicated to understanding and preventing suicide through research and education and to reaching out to people with mood disorders and those impacted by suicide. Welcome to the show, Bob.
0: Oh, thank you for inviting me.
2: It's great to have you on the show, Bob. Um, how, I know you were listening to the last segment, so yep. uh, you know we'll probably kind of bring in some Kurt Cobain, or if you do, or your thoughts on it. But I wanted to ask you first: um, uh, How did you get in, to become head of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention?
0: Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I uh, have a long background in nonprofit management, uh, and about eleven years ago. Um, took this position, uh, although I didn't have any personal connection at the time to the issue of suicide, um, and it was more because of my background in, in running nonprofits. Uh, however, it just shows you that we all are touched by this. Uh, after a couple of years of being here, a physician friend of mine who knew clearly what I was doing, we'd talk about it, uh, I was thought it was for professional reasons, um, took his life. And I went through the same kinds of questions all survivors do. Uh, how did I not see this? Why didn't he talk to me about it?
2: And especially and, uh, since you're in the field. I, mean, I know. Amazing. I know. And
0: it, it was a real, you know, I mean, it was an eye-opener for me. Uh, and, and since then, too, there have been others in my circle of friends and family who have been at heightened risk or on medication, being treated um, and you know we're all touched by this one way or another. Matter of fact, uh, we now have some data that shows that about twenty percent of us will lose a family member to suicide, um, and within our extended family, and uh, about sixty percent of us will know someone close who's died by suicide during our lifetime.
1: Well, wow, those are high statistics. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wow. mean, it's up there with all other leading causes of death, and and, mm-hmm. and I think. That's how we have to start to think about suicide death, that it is a leading cause of death, and we have to make it a national priority to begin to prevent suicides.
1: And also realizing that it's not everybody else's problem. It can impact you and your family and your friends.
0: Absolutely. You know, the the thing about suicide death is it cuts across really just about every socioeconomic uh, category you can think of. I mean, it, it's... it's all income levels, all ethnic groups—it's uh, a problem throughout the lifespan. I think often we hear, uh, you know, more that well, this is a problem of youth, and and they'll grow out of it. And you know, certainly that is not the case. This is a problem that affects all age groups. Matter of fact, I mean, one of the most shocking statistics now is that it's the fourth leading cause of death of those eighteen to sixty-five. Mm. And, you know, that's the middle years of life. And, um, you know, and, and about 16% of all suicide deaths are among people over 65. So it, clearly it's tragic, very tragic when we lose a young person. And, you know, that gets a lot of attention. Um, but it is a problem throughout the lifespan as well.
2: Uh, absolutely. You know, I live in San Francisco, and in the past two years, two people that I've known have jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes. and uh, it's, you know, and now they're talking about how to put something around it because uh, a friend of mine years ago, David Rosen, did a study of people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge mm-hmm. and, found, and interviewed people who survived. I don't know if you're familiar with his study. But he I am, and
0: and a uh, matter of fact, there's a, a young man who is now very active in the suicide prevention field who talks about his experience of jumping uh, off the bridge and surviving that fall. Mm-hmm. and and what's so powerful about it is he talks about the fact that the you know he walked back and forth he he was ultimately diagnosed as bipolar and saying how worthless he was and how he should do it how he should do it and having this kind of internal struggle and the second that he went over the edge he did not want to die.
2: That's what David said. I guess there were eight people. I used to teach with him at the University of Rochester and he said that I I don't remember there were like a couple of hundred that died and eight people survived, and all of them were sorry on the way down. Yes. Mm. So. so,
0: I mean, we, we support, our foundation supports um, barriers on bridges because there's enough evidence to show that if you could make it difficult at that moment, that mm-hmm. that person um, may not make the attempt and doesn't necessarily, you know, go to the next bridge or anything like that. So... We think that it's, you know, it's an important strategy in in the effort to prevent suicide to have barriers on bridges as well as call phones and other things. But barriers are effective. So I know it wasn't the most popular thing out in the Bay Area, (laughs) right? um, but we did come out and support, uh, you know, the advocacy around uh, around the barriers. So we're hoping now that uh, the money can be raised to do it.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, interesting because uh, what do you think the major causes of suicide are? Do you is, do you see it as depression, or are there spontaneous suicides? Well,
0: I think that, I think often um, two parts of the question. One, we do know from research that ninety uh, percent of those who die by suicide have an underlying um, psychiatric problem uh, disorder uh, at the time of their death. Often, however, it's not diagnosed. Um, so it's not being treated, uh, and if it is treated, it, sometimes it's undertreated, and sometimes people lapse their treatment. Um, so we do know that this is not something that just happens, that there's an underlying cause. Depression is the leading cause, but bipolar disorder, anxiety, clearly alcohol and, and uh, other substance abuses, um, these are all things that can lead a person to become so despondent and hopeless uh, that they will uh, make an attempt on their life. And, uh, but I think the, um, the other part of the, the question, too, is, you know, is it impulsive? Many suicides um, seem impulsive, and, and the moment that they make the attempt, it can be very impulsive. That's why, again, the barriers uh, could work. But often the thoughts have been there for a while, and it's that moment where they're going to act on the thought that can seem very impulsive. Um, now, there are people who are depressed their whole lives and uh, don't become suicidal. Um, they struggle. They suffer with their illness, uh, but they don't become suicidal. And, and you know, that is the vast majority, which is you know, we're grateful for. But then there are those who become ill and very quickly become suicidal. So there really are, we have to understand better why some people do become suicidal, why some people will immediately, upon becoming depressed, um, see no hope and and make an attempt uh, and and often take their lives. And I think we're starting to learn that impulsivity and and how people um, solve their problems or handle their problems, their personality types will play a part in this. Um, maybe how aggressive they are, Uh, other things that, in addition to the depression, put them at higher risk. So, I mean, I think we're starting to learn a lot more about about that, about societal behavior and about uh, who's at higher risk. And we're not there where we can predict, and I think that's the long-term goal to be able to have clinicians to be able to predict. And then we could really have more interventions and, and save more lives.
2: Well, one of the problems, like with Kurt Cobain, is trying to keep people in treatment sometimes is not an easy thing, even yes. if you feel that they're in, at risk. Because, you know, maybe in the old days you could um, force them to stay into treatment, but no more.
0: No, and that is a serious problem. And that, that's. I think you know our view on that too is that you know you have to educate the family, uh, the caregivers, the friends, the people around them, to encourage them to continue um, to to either take medication or uh, go to their therapist and get the help. And I think that what happens often is um, the stigma, I think, works against us either seeking help to begin with. uh, That somehow this was I think I got some good comments made uh, in the segment with Dev. That, you know, in many cases, you know, it's, oh, I should be able to pull myself together. Mm-hmm. People don't seek help. Um, and I think the stigma really works against it. It's a barrier. If somebody, you know, is diagnosed uh, with diabetes, um, you know, they get help and they take their medications and insulin and they, you know, they follow up on their treatment and they take it seriously and, you know, um, but we don't and, see that, unfortunately, with depression. And society doesn't blame them.
1: Disorder. I mean, if someone has diabetes, if someone has feelings of depression, people say, "Suck it up, walk it off." You right. know, you think positive thoughts. You know, you can change the way you're feeling just by your thoughts, et cetera, yes. Rather than realizing that if it's a serious clinical depression, they need other medication, therapy, and other things.
0: Yes, and by the way, the combination uh, for those with major depression, the combination of of um, Psychotherapies, especially certain types, I think, uh, with medication, really is, seems to be the most effective. Now, it's not to say that some people don't get better with uh, without medication too. And I mm-hmm. think you know that's really where the clinician has to has to be um, involved and make those decisions with the, with the patient and hopefully their families. And I think the more we can have the the caregivers and the support system, uh, then people you know will. With their treatment and uh, and get better. Right. The thing is, is that people do get better, and I think that those who become suicidal just can't see that,
2: and they're okay. in such terrible pain. Yeah, we need to go to break now. So one of the things I want to say to our audience out there is you can hear how hard it is to get you know, people to get help. So we know if you've had somebody die of suicide and you're listening to this show, we know you tried hard to help them. And um, our heart goes out to you for the the losses you've had. I,
0: I think it's so important for those who have had a suicide loss to know that they're not alone and that it's not their fault. I mean, suicide is the complication of illness and uh, that the, the death is the fault of the illness. Just the way things go wrong, you know, with uh, with the heart and the lungs, they, things go wrong when the brain, and, and people can die. It can be fatal, and but it's not their fault, and I think that's starting to really, I think, resonate and change, and we see so many more surviving families and friends speaking out and, and talking about it and, and not hiding it the way they did historically, and I think that's starting to change the public's understanding as well as getting more people involved for suicide prevention and the cause. and So one of the resources that certainly for those listening who have had a suicide loss, every year um, the Saturday before Thanksgiving is National Survivors of Suicide Day. And there are healing conferences now in about 170 cities around the country, all happening on that day. And there's a live broadcast. Um, and... Matter of fact, that broadcast is available free on our AFSP website to view. It's an hour and a half. It has survivors talking about their experience. It has clinical people. It's got a lot of good information for the families, and it's something I would certainly recommend to those who have had a suicide loss.
2: And and, and that website is
0: www.afsp.org.
2: AFSP stands for American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, right?
0: dot okay. org, and then just click on Survivor Resources, and it's National Survivors of Suicide Day. They can watch the broadcast. It's an hour and a half. It's it's very very informative.
2: That's great. So, um, what do you what do you ideas do you have and thoughts for people to find hope and healing after suicide?
0: Well, again, I think it's to learn about about it. People are caught off guard often. They didn't see it coming. They 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 feel guilty. They're shocked. Um, I think programs like uh, the Survivor Day uh, conference I mentioned, but also, you know, there are support groups. There's a lot of good information. Um, not to be alone, but to be with people who have had this common experience, we find is very helpful. One of the things our foundation has been doing now for about four years is these uh, out of the darkness walks, which we do each fall uh, all over the country. We should have about 200 walks going on this fall. Uh, there's information uh, about last year's walks, and then we'll be announcing new walks. But what we find from the walks is that it brings together survivors, people they don't even know in their own communities who have had this loss. And from that, there's a lot of bonds that are formed. They know they're not alone. And there's really a healing that, that occurs and a beneficial aspect of that. It also raises awareness, which is great in terms of the the whole effort to prevent suicide which is terrific um, but we do find the walks we have a big national walk coming up uh, this coming june in chicago june 27th and 28th which is literally an overnight walk
1: Hello. We started
0: at sundown and ended at sunrise and uh, there'll be we expect about two thousand people to be participating in chicago it again brings attention it raises funds to help support prevention research and education but it also really is beneficial to the walkers, and that walkers are both those who've had a loss um, as well as those who may have been suicidal and are better, as well as those who care about someone right now in their family who's struggling with depression so it really is a community that is formed uh,
1: yeah, and as well as those that are watching people walk
0: yes, as a matter of fact, you're absolutely right. I mean, as you mm-hmm. walk down the streets and people say, "What are you walking for?" and so on, you know mm-hmm. I mean it really is a uh, something that for suicide prevention, I don't think we could have imagined, you know, ten years ago. But we're finding that uh, it's growing by leaps and bounds. Last year, we had over forty thousand people walk across the
2: country. Uh, mm-hmm. How fabulous! fabulous. Now, now, what if I want to volunteer?
0: Yes, Can I help volunteers for those uh, events as well. And we also, if you look on the AFSP website again, afsp.org, there are chapters now in about thirty-two cities around the country. And they're always looking for people to volunteer, to help with programs, to um, to be trained as speakers, to do outreach to, uh, if they're survivors and, and they're a number of years out from their own loss, we train them to do outreach to the recently bereaved, again, to show that they're not alone and to be supportive and that, you know, that people, as, as difficult as the road is, there is life will continue and, and it's to hear that from a peer, to someone who's been through it, is, is just so enormously helpful.
2: And I think, you know, Heidi and I always feel that helping others and reaching out is really the beginning of a tremendous amount of healing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Uh, we, we would certainly fully agree with that. Absolutely.
2: Well, you know, right. And
0: also advocacy. You know, I think one of the things we don't talk about enough about in the suicide prevention field is, is that there is, there is a political side to this. And, you know, we clearly in many other fields, um, you know, that advocacy in getting grassroots people involved has brought more attention, whether it's the war on cancer or HIV AIDS. Uh, We have seen enormous progress in prevention because of that political dimension. And in the fact that now people who have been impacted by suicide are starting to become more activist and and speaking out with their legislators and other policy makers, um, can really help our cause. And I think that's kind of where we are. We're, it's, it's new. It's pretty, uh, you know, in it's infancy. Uh, but I think that's where uh, we would see the suicide prevention field heading.
2: So when you feel uh, up to it and when you've uh, healed yourself and taking care of yourself first, doing volunteer work and reaching out, and those uh, things are great ways to go. Well, it's time to close our show.